1 Samuel chapter 1. You find it in your Bible? 1 Samuel chapter 1. I was watching a documentary this weekend on a gentleman named Gene Cernan. Who's heard of Gene Cernan? Raise your hand. Gene Cernan. Of course you haven't. He was the guy who encircled the moon before Neil Armstrong. He's the guy who came first, but he did eventually walk on the moon. He was the last person to walk on the moon, the last Apollo mission that launched when I was five days old, so I don't remember it. December 7th, 1972, that mission launched at night, and Gene Cernan was the last man to walk on the moon. He said something interesting in this documentary about the space program, and specifically about the Apollo program, and the fame that the astronauts experienced. The astronauts became, I mean, famous, right? More famous than the Beatles, maybe. He said this, and this was really interesting. He said, during that time, what our country needed, what our country needed during that time, our country needed a hero. And the astronauts became that hero. For many of you who lived through that time, would you agree? I mean, the country was in desperate times. There was conflict in Vietnam. There was all kinds of things happening. And the country needed a hero, and the astronauts fit the bill. He said, the country needed a hero. Well, this is precisely the way Israel is. In 1 Samuel, the country needs a hero. It's in desperate times that 1 Samuel occurs. In fact, if you'll turn backwards in your Bible to the last chapter of Judges, Judges 21, the last verse of Judges 21, verse 25, reads like this. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. Everyone did as he saw fit. In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did as he saw fit. That language sounds really familiar. There's another place in the Bible that language is used. It was just before the flood. Everyone did that which was right in what? His own eyes. Things haven't improved. Israel has no king, and everyone is doing as he saw fit. In your scripture, the book of Ruth occurs. That's an interruption in the original Old Testament, the Hebrew version of it. Ruth occurs much later. You go from Judges 21 right to 1 Samuel. Everyone is doing as he sees fit. This is the condition of Israel as 1 Samuel opens up. Israel has no king. Everyone is doing as he sees fit. Or as Gene Cernan would say, Israel needs a hero. 1 Samuel is going to outline for us God's gift to his people of a king. 1 Samuel, what's the purpose of 1 Samuel? 1 Samuel is going to show us and illustrate and demonstrate for us God's great gift of a king for his people. Bible trivia, who's that king? It's David. It wasn't Saul. We'll get to that. It's David. How do, I, what, well, how do we know it's David? David doesn't become king till 2 Samuel, right? Well, how could 1 Samuel be all about David becoming king if he doesn't even become king? Because it wasn't until the 1500s that 1 and 2 Samuel became two books. It was always one book. So really, we're just going through Samuel. This is the story of God's good gift of a king for his people, a king that will draw his people into right relationship with God himself. The whole point is God wants to give his people a king. He wants to give his people a hero 
that will draw them into the covenant relationship that he wants with them. He wants to have a relationship where they don't just do as they see fit, they do as God sees fit. Because that's the best relationship to have. So Samuel is going to be a story of God giving a good king to his people that this king may lead them into a, a covenant relationship with God. And because of this covenant relationship with God, they will experience the blessing of God. They need a hero. They need a king. They need to know God. And they need to, a king to draw them into a relationship where they know God. But of course, Samuel doesn't start with King David. It starts with a woman named Hannah and her husband, Elkanah. And this is where the story begins. The king maker is Samuel. Samuel is the one who is going to anoint the king. And he is the one who is going to draw the king out. And he wants his people to know God. And I want us this morning for two chapters. Very simple thing I want to offer to you to think about. Two enemies of knowing God. We're going to about, talk about two enemies of knowing God. As we think about God wanting to draw his people into right relationship with him. Two enemies of knowing God. Who knows who Elkanah and Hannah are? Anybody heard of these people? Samuel's parents, right? You know that. Samuel's parents. Elkanah and Hannah, we don't know anything about them other than they're uh, Levites. They're of the tribe of Levi, but they're living in the territory of Ephraim, which wasn't terribly unusual. The Levites lived all over the place. Elkanah had two wives. He had his wife, uh, Hannah, and another wife, Penina. Hannah had no children. Hannah was unable to have children. And she was devastated by the fact that she couldn't have any children. Most likely, and I think this is a great guess, but most likely, Elkanah and Hannah fell in love and had a fabulous relationship and got married, like many couples do when they got married. And as many couples would do upon getting married, they wanted to have children. This is something that's important in our culture, and it's important even more so in their culture. And Hannah, tragedy a tragedy, heartbreak, she can't have children. She can't have children. Elkanah and Hannah are in love, but, but they have no children. It's critically important that they have children, that, that his family line is passed on. Not only that, it's, it's important for their well-being that as they age, they have children to take care of them. More important in their time than ours. Most likely what happened then, just like Abraham when Sarah couldn't have children, he got the bright idea. I'll have children with my servant. How'd that work for the relationship? Well, you say it was Sarah's idea. Well, Abraham could have said no. So most likely what happened is, is Hannah couldn't have children, so they sat down and they didn't know what to do and, and we'll keep trying, we'll see what happens. And finally said, there's only one thing to do. You need to meet somebody who can have children. And so Penina marries Elkanah and she cranks out babies. How do you think that affected her relationship with Hannah? You can read about it. It made their relationship terrible because not only could Hannah not have children and she would filled with the sadness of the tragedy of not being able to have children in her life, but her rival wife, and that's how Penina should be described, her rival wife rubbed it in her face. Who knows the name she would have been called? 
but she would rub it in her face. You can't have children. Lucky they brought in me and my fertile womb. And this is the burden. It says that Hannah's life was bitter. Once a year, they would go up to Shiloh where the tabernacle was set up and they would celebrate, most likely the a celebration of the Feast of Booths. And that's where you would set up a tent and you would camp there for a week and you would enjoy a feast and it would be a celebration. And it says that Elkanah would give food to offer as a sacrifice and as an offering to his wives. He would give some food to Penina and her children to take to the tabernacle and offer as a sacrifice. And he would then also give sacrificial food to Hannah. Do you, do you read, have you heard what it, what it says? He says, he gave her a double portion. He loved her. The love that he had for her had nothing to do with the fruitfulness of her womb. It had to do with the relationship they had together. And he would give her a double portion. And then it would say all the way to church, all the way to Shiloh to celebrate this feast. Penina, it says this in verse 6 of Samuel chapter 1. The Lord, it says the Lord had closed her womb. Her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. All the way to the tabernacle, all the way to Shiloh provoking her and provoking her and provoking her. Could you imagine what that would be like? Hannah was distraught. She was emotionally wore out. Her husband even said this one day when, when Hannah was at Shiloh, he said, uh, he looked at her in verse uh, nine, it says this. Um, oh no, verse eight. Her husband said to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Let's stop there. Guys, see, it's not just us. Come on, Elkanah. I mean, how dense is this guy? What's, I'm sorry, what's, what's, what's wrong, honey? I mean, I mean, seriously. So fortunately, guys, it's not just us. It's in the Bible. If you don't know what your wife is thinking, it's biblical. Now, uh, <laughs> it doesn't mean you shouldn't. You still need to learn it. You need to take the time necessarily to be relationally invested in what's going on with your wife. So don't hear me wrong, but it is what it is. He had no clue what was going on. And he says to her, don't I mean more to you than 10 sons? He was hurt. He was hurt. He didn't know. He didn't understand. He had no clue what this was like for his wife. He said, listen, listen, how you're sure Penina has cranked out kids, but you have me. You have all of me. Isn't that enough? He didn't know. He didn't understand. He was doing his best, but it was missing the mark. Hannah goes to the temple, to the tabernacle. It's set up. There are likely outbuildings that have been constructed. It was the tabernacle. The temple hasn't been built yet, but there was likely structures for the high priest. And the high priest is a guy named Eli. And she goes to the tabernacle to pray. And... Uh, she made a vow saying this, Lord Almighty, if you'll look upon your servant's misery, how does she describe her experience so far? Misery. If you look upon my misery and just remember me, don't forget your servant, but give me, give her a son and I will give him to the Lord for all of his days of his life and no razor will be used on her head. She's saying, Lord, if you will give me a son, I will dedicate him to your service for his whole life. I will dedicate him to your service for your whole life. Then as she continued praying, she, she was on her knees and she was praying. Her lips were moving, but she was praying silently in her own heart. And the priest, Eli, was sitting there as this woman was praying, crying out. And this priest, what does he say to her? Get up, you drunk. 
put your wine away from you. What are you doing? And she has to convince him, I'm not drunk. I didn't show up at temple. I'm here pouring out my spirit. I'm not pouring out my drink, my wine or my beer, she says. I'm pouring out my heart to the Lord. I am not going to seek my gladness from booze. I'm going to seek it from God hearing my prayer. And Eli says to her, go in peace. May God give you what you grant. And immediately like that, she knew God would hear her prayer. It says she went and she freshened up. She ate some food and she was no longer downcast. She went home with her husband and they became pregnant. And she had a son. She weaned him. Usually weaning in that day was two to three years. A a baby would be weaned. So for two years, she didn't go to temple. And after she weaned him, Shur and her husband took her son. What's his name? Samuel. And she took him to the temple and she dedicated him to service all of the days of his life. He lived there. He was raised in the temple. She gave her son over to service to God. Two enemies of knowing God. The first enemy of knowing God we're going to think about today. The first enemy of knowing God. Here it is. Barrenness. There isn't enough. One of the enemies we face as people who want to know God is the fact that we will often say, God has not provided. You ever said that? Well, you wouldn't say it out loud, not at church. We're supposed to be all clean and happy, right? Of course you have. If you've been a Christian more than two minutes, uh, God, I know what your Bible says, and I know what my life looks like, and you have not provided And one of the enemies we face of knowing God is there isn't enough. One of the enemies Hannah faced of knowing God was the fact that God said, if you follow me and you obey me and you uh, follow my covenant and you uh, stick with what I have called you to do, I will make your animals fruitful. I will make your crops fruitful. And what was one of the other blessings? I will make your womb fruitful. And she's saying, God, I have sought you in your ways and you aren't showing up. And a real enemy of knowing God is saying, God, you haven't provided enough. Not only have you not provided enough, God, what you have provided is terrible. You provided Penina, a rival wife, to remind me over and over and over again that you haven't showed up the way I thought you would. But Hannah prayed, and she sought the Lord with all of her heart. And she sought the Lord and she prayed the strangest prayer I have ever heard. What was the desire of her heart in that moment? A son, right? A son. She was praying for a son so hard the priest thought she was drunk. And she said, if you give me a son, I'll give him away. If you give me a son, I'll give him away. Why would she pray that? I mean, think about it. Why would she pray that? Isn't that the weirdest prayer? If you give me a son, I'll give him away. Now, uh, Hannah, maybe you are drunk. It doesn't make any sense. Well, it does make sense if one thing is true of Hannah. And there's the only way in my mind that this makes any sense at all. And here it is. Here's my suggestion. And I was right most of the time this week. <laughs> she was more concerned with the God who would provide than what he would Have you ever prayed for something and the real issue isn't the fact that it's showing up? What is the real issue? God, where are you? 
I mean, the real issue isn't whatever that thing is that you need, that you know you need, and nobody's denying that you need it, but there's that thing you need, and you say, God, where is it? I mean, that would be nice, but on the, one, the other hand, it's like, but God, if you are who you say you are, where are you? And so what Hannah was displaying was what she really treasured was not the son she would have, but a God who would provide a son. What is revealed in Hannah is what she really treasured was that moment where she could kneel down and pray. And the priest didn't understand the value of it. And we're going to see that in, in the second chapter. We're going to see how bad this priest is. But she understood the real value in God providing in that moment is the fact that God provided, not that something was given to her. And she said, if you will provide a son, I will dedicate him to you. She wants provision because that provision comes from God himself. She saw that in the life of her rival, Penina, having a bunch of kids didn't make her happy. Did you hear that when I read Hannah's song? Verse 5 of 1 Samuel chapter 2. Those who are full hire themselves out for food, but those who are hunger, hunger no more, are hungry, hunger no more. She who, who is barren uh, bores, bears seven children. That would mean all of her children. But she who has many sons, do you think she's thinking of Penina when she wrote that? The answer is yes. Pines away. She could see in her rival wife, she had all the sons and daughters she could ever want, and she was miserable. So she already knew that God giving her what she wanted is not the answer to her problems. It's God that is the answer to the challenges she faces. She values the God who would answer her prayer higher than the answer of the prayer itself. And that's why she's willing to give up her child. She's willing to give her child up because in that moment she will say, I have what I need. I have a God who hears. I have a God who is near. But in the want, in the need, in the difficulty, in the barrenness of our lives, we have a tendency to think there isn't enough. God has not provided. And if there isn't enough, what does that mean about God? He's not good. If God has not provided, God is not good. And if God is not good and he is, does not provide, what does that mean? That means God is not present. Do you see how uh, having significant need as Hannah did can be terribly dangerous and hurtful to our relationship with God? Because the issue isn't that we have need. The issue is that it affects how we see God. We say, well, God isn't good. If he is good, he's not present. And if he's not present, he's not a God that I need. God is good. God is present. And that's why Hannah prayed. God is good. And, and God is present. And that's why Hannah got on her knees and pleaded with all her heart. Is because she trusted a God who is good and a God who is present. What's the worst thing that could happen to you when you have great need? I'm going to offer a suggestion to answer that question. What's the worst thing you could happen that could happen to you when you have great need? The worst thing that could happen to you is that you could get what you need without receiving God's presence. 
the worst thing that could happen when you have great need is all of a sudden for all your problems to go away and not to have found God's presence in your life. It will not take long for that need having been met for you to get another need that you need met. The worst thing that could happen because in that moment we will stop pursuing God's goodness and God's presence in our life. The real danger when we have great need or as Hannah is described, great misery is that we would harden our heart to God. Uh, We would harden our heart to him because he is the only one who could really satisfy us. The satisfaction will not come from that need being met. The satisfaction will come to us when we yield ourselves to God and trust that he is good and he is present. Ask yourself this question. This is a a question I got from another uh, author, an author. I think it's a good question. Ask yourself this question. If I had X, fill in the blank. If I had X, everything would be fine. Ask yourself that question. If I had, or that you could ask the inverse of that. If X wasn't true, if X went away, don't put my name in there, that's not nice. (laughs) If X went away, everything would be fine. Whatever that X is, is God for you. Whatever that thing is, is what is what can what can achieve for you what only God can achieve. If if I had X amount of dollars to to make my debt go away or pay off a bill or uh, buy a house or pay for a car, uh, that X for you you think can do what God can do. Now I know. Listen, all, when we say it that way, well, no, I know it can't do that. But, but you you believe it can because it keeps you up at night. It keeps us all up at night. The escape from this is to look at Hannah and pursue God the way she did. Oh Lord, look upon my misery and remember me. Have you ever told God you're miserable? I, man, I really hope you have. Do you think God at some point, you know, he's like Mr. He just skips around heaven and only plays happy music. He doesn't want people coming up and dragging him down. Come on, happy prayers only, right? God knows all about your misery. And this is where Hannah's prayer is so helpful. God, I am miserable. I need you to remember me because I know that in my heart and my mind and my flesh, I'm going to pursue all kinds of ways to alleviate this misery. I need you to remember me, God, because I know you're the only one who can actually satisfy me. And when God provides whatever he might provide for you in that moment, and if you have been a praying person for longer than a few months, you have had those times where God has answered your prayer. We must remember, as Hannah did, the gift from God's hand is not the gift itself. It's the fact that his hand offered it. The gift that God gives us is not what he has given. It's the fact that he himself was the one giving it. And that's what Hannah said. She said, give me a son, God. And at that moment, I don't even need a son because then I know you have remembered. Now, I'm going to finish the story because we're Westerners and we like happy endings. If we were near Eastern like these people, we wouldn't need a happy ending. She has a bunch of other kids, so it's fine. Thank the Lord. It's a happy ending, right? It didn't have to be, but that's how God decided to work in her life. 
two enemies to knowing God. First enemy, barrenness. When we succumb to this enemy, we say there isn't enough, so therefore God is not good, or he is not present, or both. And the answer is, oh Lord, look upon my misery and remember. He is good and he is present, even in the difficult times. Second enemy of knowing God is the second part of chapter 2. Look with me at verse 11 of of 1 Samuel chapter 2. Elkanah went home to Ramah, that's where they lived, but the boy, that is Samuel, ministered before the Lord under Eli the priest. Eli was the priest. He had two sons. These were not good sons. Eli was the high priest, but his son served under him, and then the other priests served, so people would show up at their tabernacle with their offerings, and the priests would do all the work of helping them get their offering offered. And so they had a job as a priest, a technical way of thinking of a priest. He is an intermediary between one person and God. And so the priest is there to mediate the people and God. And so the people come, they say, we want to talk to God. And the priest will say, you can't talk to God. You're unclean. And the priest says, oh, I'd like to be clean. And the priest says, okay, offer the appropriate sacrifice. And so God, access to God is through the priesthood. And Eli and his sons were evil. people would come to the priest and they would offer a sacrifice. And the sacrifice could be offered in a variety of ways and we're not going to go into all the detail. But suffice to say, a part of that sacrifice, the priest got to eat. So I brought the sacrifice of a Big Mac. Just for example, okay? I bring the sacrifice of a Big Mac. The priest would offer it. He would wave it before the Lord and do all the stuff that they do. He would get one of the two patties. Now, instead of two all-beef patties, it's one all-beef patty, special sauce, lettuce, cheese, pickles, onions on a sesame seed bun. You remember that commercial? Good, it's not just me. So he would get a bit. He would get a piece. And that was appropriate, and that was expected. That's the way the priests lived. These priests didn't like the cuts of meat they were getting. And so there was two things that they were doing that was an abomination. Is number one, when people would bring meat and it would sometimes be boiled in the pot, they would take a fork and stick it into the pot and say, that's my meat, and they would take it. We're not totally sure why that was evil, but all we do know is it was evil. The other thing they would do is the people would bring the meat to them, and normally the meat would be sacrificed on the fire, and the fatty portions would be burned up, and a portion of it was for the priests. In this case, the priests were saying, we're not going to take your meat unless it's raw. Why is that? Guys, we know why. We've grilled. The fat's where the flavor is. I don't want all the fat burned up because really what they wanted, they wanted the best meat. They were tired of eating the leavings. God was getting all the good meat and they wanted the choicest meat. And so they were taking it prior to being offered. This is what it says in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 17 about what they were doing. The sin of the young man, young men was very great in the Lord's sight, for they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. They were priests who were supposed to mediate between God and man the offerings, and they were treating the offering with contempt. And just a sideline, the primary function of the offering in the Old Testament was not to atone for sin. The primary function of all offerings in the Old Testament was what? to say there is a better offering coming. So every 
time, they treated the offering with contempt, I would suggest they treated Jesus with contempt. Because all of those offerings were intended to tell them, and you can read the book of Hebrews to check me on that, a better offering is coming. And so this was a severe sin. It gets worse. These guys also would take the women who were serving in the temple and they would sleep with them. This was a big party for these two guys. Eat all the best food, sleeping with all the women in the temple. And this, remember, this is where Hannah came to pray to the Lord. And who was it that told her to stop being a drunk? Do you remember? That moron, Eli. I mean that in the nicest terms. So here's Eli, and we'll get into it in a minute, who I think was likely participating in some way with the sins of his sons, telling this woman, pouring her heart out to God to knock it off. And she pursues him anyway. Two enemies to knowing God. The first one is barrenness. There isn't enough. The next enemy to knowing God is plenty. There's more than enough. And we're seeing this in Eli and his two sons. The first enemy is there's not enough in barrenness. The second enemy to knowing God is plenty, is there's more than enough. They had more than enough food. They had more than enough sexual company to satisfy their needs. They had more than enough influence as Levites at the temple, at the tabernacle in Shiloh. They had everything they could ever want or need. Influence, power, fame, money, food, pleasant company. And they did not know God. They did not know God. They treated with contempt the offering of God. They had a life of ease, a life of comfort, and a life of pleasure. In the midst of all of this is young Samuel being raised up in this temple. Anybody feel bad for Samuel now all of a sudden? I think home might have been a better option. But here's what the book of Samuel says about him in verse 26. The boy Samuel continued to grow in stature and in favor with the Lord and with men. Sound familiar? Luke chapter 2, verse 52, that was how Jesus was described after he had been found at the temple. He continued to grow. So he is a stark contrast to Eli and his two sons. Is Samuel at the temple, he knows the Lord. Samuel, who gets one article of clothing on an annual basis. You can read through there and find out later. Every year, his mom would show up with his outfit. That, you know, that one. I don't know what he did on laundry day. in humility, seeking the Lord, and he grows up knowing the Lord in the midst of Eli and his two sons. What do we do when there's plenty? There's more than enough. We have wants, desires. Of course we do. We're human. We're people. We have flesh. We have desires. We have comfort. We have things we seek to satisfy us. I eat ice cream in bed at night. I feel like I'm confessing sin. I did the other day. On Monday, I had to go to the dentist. I was telling him I like to eat ice cream in bed at night. He said, why do you like to do that? Because the kids are asleep. It tastes better. Try it. You got kids? Taste it when they're up and you have to share with them. Then eat it later when they're asleep and they can't have any. It is delicious. 
and he said to me, of course, he's a dentist. What do you think he said to me? Of course, you get up and brush your teeth. I said, um, I, I said I was in bed, right? That's kind of a one-time deal for me. I get the ice cream, get in bed. I'm not getting up again. That's it. Why would I get up and brush my teeth? It was a ridiculous question. I felt like I was confessing my sin. But then what was amazing, my teeth were great, by the way. See, told you so. So if you want to, how do you have good teeth? Eat ice cream at night, before bed, don't brush your teeth. We have needs, we have things that we want to satisfy us. We, there, there's food, there's, there's influence, there's power, there's a leisure, there is sexual satisfaction we all seek. There is influence and significance and important and all of these things are okay. None of these things are evil. But the danger of the enemy to knowing God is that when we have more than enough, we will generally say God is good but he's not the best thing I have going. I mean, God is good. There's nothing wrong with him. Everybody needs a moral compass. But of all the things I've got going in my life, he certainly doesn't rank in the top 10. Of all the things that get me charged up, that get me motivated to get out of bed in the morning, it's a great job I have. It's a great vacation I'm looking forward to. It's, it's a, a, whatever it might be for you. But the risk of having more than enough, it is a risk of having too much, is God is in fact good. We wouldn't be here on a Sunday morning if we didn't have some sense that God is good. But the problem I think we face is uh, modern Americans and the plenty that each and every one of us has, is he's just, but he's not the best. Hannah is a negative example of, or I should say Hannah is a positive example of someone who in the midst of misery overcame the enemy of barrenness, the enemy to her soul being satisfied in Christ. The difficulty of that and the challenge of that, and she continued to seek the Lord. And of course she was human, she wasn't perfect. But Eli and his sons are a negative example. They, they fail completely, they fail miserably. Eli has the gall to lecture Hannah on holiness. He had no interest in the Lord. He only had interest in the Lord only to the degree that God would provide for his pleasure, his needs. Look at the end of 1 Samuel chapter 2. A prophet comes to Eli and tells Eli that he is under judgment because of the sins of his sons and his own sin basically means it will never be in the life of Eli and his, all of his descendants. Everybody will die young and they will never uh, have a high priest sitting again. And that comes to a fruition later in Israel's history. And he says this about the family of Eli. I will raise up a faithful high priest who will do according to my heart and my mind and I'll establish his house and he will minister before my anointed one always. Verse 36 Everyone left in your family line will come and bow down before him for a piece of silver and a crust of bread and say, appoint me to some office so I can eat. He says, Levi, you are serving only so you can have food in your belly. And that day will come in your family line where they will say, give me some job in the temple that I might have a crust of bread. And that comes true for Eli and his family. The prophet promises Eli, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest. I will raise up for myself a faithful priest. 
In Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, Moses said this. You don't have to turn there. You can write it down and look it up later if you'd like. The nations, he is talking to the people of Israel before they invaded the promised lands. The nations you dispossess, uh, you will dispossess, listen to those who practice sorcery or divination. But as for you, the Lord your God has not permitted you to do so. Listen, verse 15, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. This is what you ask of the Lord your God. Let us not hear the voice of the Lord or let us not hear the voice of God or see the great fire anymore. And the Lord said to me, what they say is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you, Moses, from among their brothers. Listen, I will put my words in his mouth and he will tell them everything I command him. If anyone does not listen to my words that he speaks in my name, I will call him to an account. God says to Moses, I will raise up a prophet like you, Moses, and my words will be in his mouth. My heart will be his heart. And then God tells Eli through a prophet saying, I will raise up a priest and my heart will be his heart. He will faithfully serve these people. He will raise up a prophet. He will raise up a priest. And at the end of, uh, at the middle of 2 Samuel and 2 Samuel 7, we find out he's going to raise up a what? A king. We've discovered a promise he makes to King David. He will raise up a prophet, a priest, and a king. Does he raise up three people? He raises up one. Who is it? That's Jesus. We need a prophet who will faithfully say the words of God. We, we need a priest who cares only about the well-being of his people being connected with their God. And we need a king who will rule according to God's purposes. We need a prophet, a priest, and a king. And Jesus is all of those things. And this is where Second Samuel, where Samuel is going. A prophet and a priest and a king that is eventually to be discovered in Jesus. It wasn't Eli. How does Eli die? We're going to get to there in chapter 4, but this is a little preview of coming attractions. His sons go into battle with the Ark of the Covenant because they think if they have the Ark of the Covenant, they will always win their battles. Or at the very least, somebody will open it and they'll all melt. They didn't get it, Merle. I don't know. Raiders of the Lost Ark, old school reference. Try and keep up. God doesn't give them victory. The ark is captured. Both of Eli's sons are killed in a single day as according to the prophecy. And then Eli, it says, falls over backwards in his chair and breaks his neck. Why did falling over backwards in his chair break his neck? There are two reasons that were given. Number one, he was not a young fella. And number two, he wasn't a small fella. He was big because he had been eating of the fat-laden sacrifices as Phineas and his other son had been eating. Because he had been gorging himself on the offerings of his people instead of serving his people, he was being served, and so God judged him and his line. We need a prophet and a priest and a king who will seek not his own ways, but God's ways on our behalf. Let me end this way. I want you to think about the barrenness you face in your life. There are areas in your life where you have significant need that are significant weights. And you seek the Lord on them. I know you are. I know you do. 
And the question you have, though, when, when, the, when, the, when the answers are slow in coming is you say, God, are you there? And God, if you're there, are you good? I want to read a passage out of Matthew chapter 4. Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, is driven out into the wilderness. and says he spends 40 days in the wilderness. He doesn't eat anything for 40 days. Verse 2 of Matthew chapter 4 says, After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter, that Satan, came to him and said, If you're the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. If you're so tight with God, eat. If you're so, if you and God are such good buddies, Son of God, I mean, you must know him. You know how God works. You just take these rocks, you could turn them into one of those awesome loaves you get at Outback Steakhouse with butter and honey mixed in it. You don't think Jesus was hungry? Do you think that he said, oh, no big deal? He wanted the bread. He wanted to eat like nothing else. If you, I, I go 20 minutes without eating, I act, I act like that. He was hungry. And Jesus says, it's written. Man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So for those of you who are in the midst of, the term I'm using here is barrenness, and I'm using that broadly. I just have one thing I want to encourage you with. Jesus, in his wilderness, did it perfect for you. You do not have to be perfect at handling your hardship. You don't have to nail it. You don't have to have a good attitude. You don't have to always think God is awesome. He is. He doesn't need you to think it for it to be true of him. Because Jesus' life and death was a substitute on your behalf, you can go through garbage and not be awesome at it. You can be lame at going through hardship. You can be whiny. You can have a bad attitude. You can be snooty. Are, are those things good things? Well, that's up to you to decide. I'm going to leave that between you and the Lord. But Jesus did it perfect for you. Because this is what people who are going through difficulty do. We heap all this pressure on ourselves and our, our head hits the pillow at night and says, God... He's not going to answer me because I had a bad attitude today. So why would he ever hear me? He knows what I think of him. He would never listen to someone like me. When God looks at you, what does he see? At the end of the day, head hits a pillow with your sour attitude and you can't sleep. He says, I see Jesus. You did fantastic. You nailed it today. In your hardship, in your misery. You do not have to be perfect in it. Can you? All I want for you today, if that's you, is for you to leave here saying you don't have to be perfect in your misery. That you can set aside the big a need we have as Christians to have it all together. And for people to say, man, they are doing so. They're going through a hard time, but they always keep that stiff upper lip. You don't have to. I don't know what the opposite of stiff upper lip is. That's a weird saying anyway. You don't have to be perfect in it. 
There's a verse in the Bible, so maybe you've heard of it. My grace is sufficient for you. Have you heard that? Do you think his grace is sufficient for the fact that you're not very good at going through hard stuff? I want an out loud. Is his grace sufficient for the fact that you're not very good at going through hard stuff? Yes or no? Amen. So let it go. You don't have to be as good at it as you think. You can take that pressure off yourself because God is really that good. He really is. He's nutty about it. It's weird. He has every reason in the book to cast us aside. And we show up, he says, no, no, in Jesus, you're perfect. I love you. You don't have to be perfect at handling your hardship, but you do need Jesus who handled it perfectly for you and on your behalf. Okay, for those of us who struggle with having too much, that would be everyone in the room if you live in the United States. John chapter 6. Jesus had done a miracle where he fed a bunch of people with bread and fish. We don't know if the fish was cooked. It could have been the first sushi buffet. They came to him later in verse 30 of John chapter 6. They asked him, what miraculous sign will you give that we may see and believe you? That's code for we're hungry again. Our forefathers ate manna in the desert and he gave them bread to eat. Jesus says, I tell you the truth, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. From the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Eli and his sons utilized the people to meet their own fleshly desires, food and sex. Jesus has no need for that. He is a priest who comes to it. He doesn't need bread. In fact, he goes the complete opposite. He says, not only do I need bread from you, I don't need it. I am your bread. That's what he says in verse 35. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never go thirsty. He says it this way down in verse 53. I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, that's himself, and drink his blood, there is no life in you. Jesus is saying this, do you have need? The only need you have is to have me sustaining you. The only way your hunger will ever be satisfied is in Jesus' satisfaction alone. The problem is when we have plenty, we're not hungry. We need Jesus like we need a side salad. It feels like we ought to have it. We went to a buffet when we were on vacation. I came back from my first of three trips to the buffet, boom. And it's a little something I call a high protein plate. There was no vegetables. Why would I fill my stomach with vegetables at a buffet? There's prime rib to eat. And that's how we approach Jesus. Well, yes, I'll have Jesus if there's nothing else to eat. And Jesus is saying, no, to live, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Everything else will kill you to a certain degree because the only way we have satisfaction is to be sustained by Jesus alone. 
So the question we have in thinking about this, we have a priest who doesn't need us like Eli, and we have a priest who's going to call it what it is. We have need of nothing but him, but the fact is we don't think we're that hungry. So I'll just offer this suggestion for you to mull over in your head. We have all we need for the most part, right? Has your hunger and desire ever gone away? I mean, whatever it is you wanted to get and you got it, that's kind of fun, right? How quick did you need something else? I, I mean, eating is the best example. I eat breakfast, I'm hungry by 10. You, you buy an item, you think you're, you're set, and then it gets old. You get a new job, and now you're excited about the work you're going to be doing, now it gets boring after a little while. You, you get a pay increase, and now you think all your financial problems have gone away. They probably didn't, did they? And pretty soon that new pay set isn't meeting the needs like you thought it would. Your hunger, let me just be honest with you about something. Your hunger will never go away. You will always want more. At a certain point when we have plenty, like Eli and his sons, we have to get to a point where we say, God, I'm sorry. I thought I could get it here. I need you alone. And that's called repentance. When we say, my way's not working for me. I want to do it your way, God. I don't have a hunger for you like I ought to, but I know you're the only thing that will satisfy. Your hunger will never go away. The fact is you need Jesus as much as the person who is hungry. The fact is you need Jesus as much as the person who is in misery. The blessing the person in misery has is they know it. Jesus said it this way about the wealthy man which is, again, the description of anybody living in the United States. It is easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a wealthy man to enter the kingdom of God. Why do you say that? We have no idea how significant our need is of Christ. Everything else fades and goes away. Two enemies of knowing God, barrenness, which says God either isn't good or he isn't present. And my challenge to us is just simply say, Christ walked that road for us. Let's rest in him. We don't have to be perfect at walking the road of barrenness. And secondly, in plenty, I think there's plenty of room for our repentance and say, God, we have found our needs met elsewhere. And we are still hungry. Show us that our hunger is only met in you.